Today's scripture reading comes from Matthew 5, 17 through 20. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. The word of the Lord. Good morning, church. Salam Uh Good to see you all. Welcome to Trinity Fellowship Church. My name is Phil Bryan. I am one of the elders here at Trinity and a recovering minister. So, uh, anyhow, <clears throat> I should set my timer. I can hear my wife's voice in my head saying, honey, keep an eye on the time. Actually, I can hear all of your voices in my head saying, honey, keep t- track of the time. Uh, anyhow, um, <clears throat> I'm uh, just telling you in advance, there are no slides, but I'm covering a lot of text. I apologize. My house is kind of in a mess. I was making slides yesterday and realized I couldn't find one of those little thumb drives to bring the slides to church on. So if you want to have all the text, just email me. You can find my email, philbryan@me.com. Email me. I'll send you the PDF with all the text on it. But I'll try to go through it slowly enough. Most of it's going to come straight from Matthew 5, verses 17 through 32. But we'll look at some other passages as well. Um, let me pray before we go any further. <clears throat> Father, I commit this time to you. And I, uh, I ask that you would do what you want to at this time. I am an unworthy vessel and a lousy mouthpiece. For the God of the universe, but you use unworthy vessels and lousy mouthpieces. So let your Holy Spirit transform what transpires here today so that your truth lodges in people's hearts, minds, and souls and changes them so that they know you and love you more. I pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Um, First things first, a disclaimer. And I want you to remember this. Two things on my disclaimer. One... Jesus is really smart. Okay? Disclaimer one, Jesus is really smart. Second part of the disclaimer, context matters. Okay? So we'll come back to those. But let's dive into this text. Matthew uh, 5, verses 17 through 32 is what I was assigned. You just heard the beginning of it here. Do not presume that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill... For truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke of a letter shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. 
Therefore, whoever nullifies one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever keeps and teaches them, he should be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So it sounds like the law's on. Did you all read that the same way I did? We're going with the law. Law's not going anywhere. So point one from this, law's not going anywhere. Don't forget it. There'll be a quiz later. But let's keep going, because I kind of want to just get the full feeling of this passage. Next verse, verse 20. For I say to you that unless your righteousness far surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of God. Excuse me, kingdom of heaven. So, okay. So you've got to be... Like, you've got to far surpass the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. Is that clear to everybody what he's asking? Good. Moving on. Uh, Let's keep going. Um, You've heard that the ancients were told, you shall not murder, and whoever commits murder shall be answerable to the court. But I say to you, now watch this. Jesus is going to do this a lot of times. You'll see it this week. It's in the passage that, that is after this one. He's talking about the law. Remember, he just said, the law's not going anywhere. I'm not knocking down the law. Now what he's saying is, actually, I'm making it stricter. Don't you love that? How many people like really strict rules? Oh, come on. Well, you should leave now. Okay? Though, you heard that the ancients were told, you shall not murder. So he's referring back to the Old Testament law. And whoever commits murder shall be answerable to the court. But I say to you, all right, I see you and raise you. I say to you, everyone who's angry with his brother shall be answerable to the court. Ooh, yeah, did someone just, mm? Ugh. Thank goodness I've never been angry. Um, whoever says to his brother, you good for nothing. This is basically calling someone a knucklehead. Lame brain. Hmm. I'm pretty sure that's all my brothers and I called each other growing up. That was the nicest. Whoever says good for nothing shall be answerable to the Supreme Court. And whoever says you fool. Now this is really combining the first two. The anger of the first part and the condescension of the second. So it would be a contemptuous looking down on someone. You disgusting idiot. You feel bad now, don't you? The way I said that. I feel bad saying it. Well, apparently that can send me to hell. You say, you fool, you shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. Is anybody worried at this point? Anybody concerned that this is coming from the mouth of Jesus? Like, if this is Leviticus, I'd be like, well, (laughs) yes, it's the Old Testament. This is in red. So I'm a little panicky right now. Therefore, if you're presenting your offering at the altar and you remember your brother has something against you, leave your offering there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother, then come and present your offering. Come to good terms with your accuser quickly while you're with him on the way to court so that your accuser will not hand you over to the judge and the judge to the officer and you'll not be thrown into prison. It's truly, I say to you, you'll not come out of the prison until you've paid the last quadrant. That's like last penny. Well, okay, 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 okay. All right, I can spin this. We got a little bit of an out here. 
So that whole uh, calling somebody a name, being mean. Apparently, if I can wake up and realize that I did that and that person's mad, I can go fix it. Got to get out of jail free card there, right? Unless, by chance, there are people in your history that maybe went to the grave with a grudge against you. I guess those are still on your account. I hope you didn't call anybody fool and they died. Because I don't see anything here. I think you're, I think you're going to hell. Anyhow. Mm, guys, it's not looking good. Okay, well, he changes gears. Verse 27. You've heard it was said, you shall not commit adultery. Okay, so far so good. I, I, I haven't committed adultery, so I'm feeling good. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust in her, lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Huh. How, um, I'm starting to want to go back to the Old Testament rules. Jesus' rules sound pretty tough. So if I look at somebody with lust, I've committed adultery. If your right eye is causing you to sin, tear it out and throw it away from you. I think a few of you haven't read this verse because I see two eyes everywhere. Well, I brought this just in case. If your right eye is causing you to sin, tear it out, throw it away from you. For it's better to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. Why does he keep going on about hell? Why why does he keep saying that? I really don't like this passage. Mike, help me. Mike, anybody named Mike. Help me. If your right hand's causing you to sin, cut it off and throw it away from you. For it's better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Can I see everybody's right hand? Yeah, some of you aren't raising it because you're like, well, maybe he'll think I cut it off because I'm righteous. Now it was said, whoever sends his wife away to give her a certificate, whoever sends his wife away is to give her a certificate of divorce. Oh, good, divorce. There's never anything controversial about divorce. And I haven't been divorced, so I'm feeling, I'm feeling a little safer now, but I felt pretty safe on adultery, and I got blindsided on that whole lust thing. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except for the reason of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Okay, okay. I think I dodged a bullet here. But I'm not sure everybody in the room has, have they? I don't know about you all, but this passage is kind of bumming me out. But just to recap, what I heard was the law isn't going anywhere. In fact, it's getting stricter. God is definitely evaluating my righteousness to decide if I get to go to heaven. Being mean and or condescending can send you to hell. Lust and anything else that has to do with my eye or my hand sinning can send me to hell. And be careful about an unjustified divorce leading you to inadvertent adultery. Did I get it all? Did I get everything? Well, I hope you're encouraged. Let's pray.
Good luck, as Calvin would say. Now, remember my disclaimer? What's the first part of the disclaimer? Jesus is smart. Let's start with that. What passage am I reading from? What, what is the context of this? Sermon on... This is the middle... This is the... Not even the middle. This is like the first... Second, sixth of a sermon. Now, I've already pulled a knife in my sermon. And I'm not that smart. When Jesus was planning his sermon, do you think he's a good communicator? Do you think he knows what he's doing? I mean, it helps that he's the second member of the triune Godhead. Doesn't hurt, right? Anybody worth their salt communicating through, through words, whether spoken or written, is going to make a plan. I'm, I do this with my students. I teach English. It's my day job. And, I, and I, I talk to my students and I tell them, we're always asking two questions. What is the author trying to say and how does the author say it? And that's what you should be asking when you're writing. What do I want to say and how do I want to say it? Because the way in which you say something has a huge impact on the delivery of the meaning. And I'm guaranteeing Jesus knew exactly what he was doing when he said this. Put yourself in first century Galilee. And you've just heard the lovely part that Mike did last week. Didn't he do a nice job? I mean, he got out there and, he, and they, I remember I wrote down, he was like, everyone's welcome in the kingdom. Doesn't that sound nice? I wish I'd gotten that passage. You jerk. Gee. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Everybody's welcome in the kingdom. Shine your light. And then Jesus goes gangster on us here. The law's not going anywhere and I'm watching you. I think he knew exactly what he was doing. So let's go back. Let's look at this with some different eyes. Not only did he know what he was doing, but this is a context. Not only is this the middle of a sermon Jesus gave, but this sermon is the beginning of a book that Matthew wrote. And Matthew's book is a piece of a larger puzzle. My first, I believe it was my first day in Dallas Seminary, I walked into my 301 Bible Study Methods and Hermeneutics class with Dr. Howard Hendricks. And the thing I remember most from that class is at some point he said, the ultimate context of any one word in the Bible is 66 books. The ultimate context of any one word is 66 books. The 66 books being Genesis through Revelation. The 66 books of the Bible. If you take something out of context, you drag it out and go, Aha! We can justify anything in the world from this book. Did you know that? I can stone my children for being disobedient. And I've thought about it. That's okay. I love you. You're not... It's okay. They're saying, I thought you always told us not to get stoned. Ha, <laughs> see what I, okay, anyhow. <clears throat> he brings a knife, he makes a drug joke, kill this guy. Anyhow, if you excise a piece of scripture, you can play with that thing and make it do whatever you want. Jesus is saying something that's in the middle of a quite long sermon. And that quite long sermon is in, in, in a piece of a larger gospel. Now, Matthew was writing, and when he was writing, 
while I completely believe in the inerrancy of Scripture and the authority of Scripture and the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, God used human authors, and they had styles and personalities. It's one of the things I love. It's the richest book I've ever read. And they had something they were accomplishing. And Matthew's book reads so differently from Mark's, who reads so differently from Luke's, who reads so differently from John's. And, and Matthew was writing to a predominantly Jewish audience. Well, what are they going to have in the back of their mind? You think the law is going to be floating around in there? Jesus knew exactly what he was doing, and Matthew knew exactly what he was doing. But they're not even operating independent of the whole scope of Scripture. We'll get to that. Hence, Romans 3, for starters. So let's take a look. This first bit. I didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law. So let's look with some fresh eyes, with some context, and think about what Jesus might have been doing. It's a little tricky. Abolish, we're pretty clear on, you know, do away with. But to fulfill, the word fulfill, if you go look it up, the Greek word that's used there is very nuanced and is used, there's a, like, it's one of those you just keep scrolling and scrolling and scrolling on the definition because it's used in so many different ways. And so scholars will sit and argue about the word fulfill. And it's usually because they're trying to, like, deal with this passage. Because they're like, but I thought we were not doing the law. Are we doing the law? Who's, Steve, are we doing the law? I thought we weren't doing the law. But I think Jesus knew exactly what he was saying. I think it's going to be clearer as we go what fulfilling the law means. But let's start with a couple of truths about God and the law. One is, God has a law because God can't be lawless. God's character is such that he is perfectly holy. So if God went, you know what? Moses is up on Sinai and he's like, got the tablets. He's like, Moses, just write, you do you. That's not going to work, is it? For God to lower the standard, God would have to change his character. And let me assure you, you don't want a God who willingly lowers his character to meet human desires. God's standard of perfect holiness stays put. Therefore, when he makes a law, he's saying, I'm doing this because I have to be able to tell you all that the law is fixed because I am fixed. My character can't change, so I can't suddenly go, you know what, I don't care if you break rules, it doesn't matter. It does matter. He cares about obedience. He does. He says, I'm not knocking down the law. We tend to think of the opposite of law being lawlessness. I'm going to make the point here in a minute. I think the opposite of law is love. But see, God knows us. He knows what we do. Anybody start a diet January 1st? You know that one? Diet. You're doing great. And then you go to work. Somebody brings, whatever, hot donuts to the workroom. Yeah, yeah, there we go. go. A few of you are. You go in there, you know, and you're right back in the garden. Right? Like the weight of the universe on your shoulders. Do I dare eat the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? And you cave. Because donuts are delicious. And you have one. And then what do you do? You go, well, shoot, I've blown today. You know, what the heck? So I'll go ahead and have a milkshake at lunch. 
And then you go, well, it's Tuesday. It's like the week's over practically. <sighs> then you get to Sunday, you wake up and you're like, oh, you know what? It's just the month. Is, let's just start fresh in February. February rolls around. You're already seeing the candies in the, sh- in the store and you're like, you know what? Next January is good. Let's just, I, li- I like to have a full year. It doesn't feel right. Like, you see what we do? God knows that. If God sits around and says, you know what, I, I don't really care about these rules. I don't care about laws. Now, God is going to release us from some of these, right? Peter's going to see a vision that says, you can eat bacon. Yay! It's a little more complex than that, but it, that's included. But the principle that God would say, I don't care what happens. I don't care what you do. He's never going to say that, is he? So he's not abolishing law, but he is fulfilling it. But I think the fulfillment is love. If you look further in Matthew, in this same sermon, in Matthew 7, he's going to say, in everything, therefore, treat people. Verse 12, 7, 12. In everything, therefore, treat people the same way you want them to treat you, for this is the law and the prophets. Now, that's easier to remember, isn't it? This is the law and the prophets, the golden rule. That's where we get that from. Treat others the way you want them to treat you. He brings it up again in the book of Matthew. You'd almost think Matthew knew what he was doing. Teacher, Matthew 22, verse 36. Someone asked Jesus, what's the greatest commandment in the law? And he said, you'll love the Lord your God. Is this ringing a bell for anybody? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. The second's like it. You should love your neighbors yourself. Upon these two commandments hang the whole law and prophets. So the first one said love is the law and the prophets. The second one says if we're going to take it to a level of specificity, loving God and loving people, everything hangs on those two. But what's the common denominator? What is the fulfillment of the law? Love. And I'm going to make the argument in a minute that all these specifics about calling somebody a fool or lusting after someone really need to be about our concept of love. Not about about keeping score. They will be cured by our understanding of love. Not by having our list in our back pocket of the filthy five or the nasty nine. Shame on you, don't do that. Shame on you, don't do that. Shame on you, don't do that. You ever live that Christianity? I have. It's terrible. And it's not about love. Next section. For I say to you, unless your righteousness far surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you'll not enter the kingdom of heaven. So what exactly is far surpassing the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees? Now, if you were in this audience, what did you think about the Pharisees? You thought they were, you thought they were righteous to begin with, right? If you're in first century Galilee, these are partially by their own narrative that they've controlled, they are the righteous in town, aren't they? They spent all their time making sure you know they are righteous and you are not. So when Jesus says, your, your righteousness hasn't surpassed them, most people are going to go, well, okay, then I'm, count me out now. I can't top that. But again, back to that Jesus is smart thing. What do you think Jesus knew about the Pharisees? See, we don't have any episodes up to this of Jesus tangling with the Pharisees in Matthew. He's saving that one. It's a great little literary technique. 
What do we know about Jesus and the Pharisees? What do we know about the Pharisees? They're basically the, like, arch-villain, right? (laughs) They are the villain of the New Testament, aren't they? People who run around and keep score of right and wrong are the ones that fight with Jesus. They're the ones Paul is constantly talking about in pretty much all of his letters. So when Jesus says, you better far exceed them, let's just jump for fun to Matthew 23, 23. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! You tithe the mint, you, you, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin, but have neglected the weightier provisions of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. Those are the things you should have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides who strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. It's awesome. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. He does this multiple times. You clean the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside they're full of robbery and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee. First clean the inside of the cup and of the dish so the outside will become clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! You're like whitewashed tombs, which on the outside appear beautiful, but inside they're full of dead men's bones and uncleanness. So you too outwardly appear righteous to people, but inwardly you're full of hypocrisy and, what's the word? Lawlessness. So when Jesus said, you've got to surpass the Pharisees, do you think he knew he was pulling a fast one on them? He might have. He might have. How, how, how much does it take to far surpass people that God says, woe to you, you're a bunch of hypocrites? I'm feeling like the bar's low. See, but I'm the guy who, once he eats the donut, waits till next year to start his diet. That's why Jesus, rhetorically, brilliant strategy, immediately goes to, let's talk law. Lest you hear that and say, I'm off the hook. Anything goes. Go crazy. Go stupid. Do what you want. Lest you think that, he says, you've heard it said about the law. And he does this three times here that we look at today. You've heard it said. What do they all have in common? If you have anger or condescension towards someone, you lust after someone, you divorce someone because you can't get along. What do they all have in common? They're relational, aren't they? They're all relational. They're all about how you interact with the people around you. Beginning to see how the new law is love? See, if you keep a list of things, right? Keep a list. You're tied to the list. My mom, my mom was a very smart lady. Um, one of the smartest people I've ever met. Incredibly brilliant lady. But when it came to technology, she was of a certain age. And she did really well for a long time, but it began to just be a lot, right? And she would call me for tech support. Anybody been in this position with a family member? My mom would call me for tech support. And she'd say, Phil, I'm having problems with my computer. I need to attach a file to an email. I'd say, oh, well, this is no big deal. It's just like opening a file. She went, she said, just walk me through step by step. 
And I would say, okay, well, you're going to click on the next. And she went, da, 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 click on the, and I could hear her on the other end. I'm like, you're writing every word down that I say. She says, yeah. I said, but if you understood the concept, Mom, attaching a file and opening a file follow the exact same protocol. It's just one, one is going to have a little, like, it's going to say file open, and one's going to say file attached. But then after that, all the buttons are going to, she's like, shh, 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 So you said click on the what? I went to the house. I walk into her desk. There are sticky notes flowcharted everywhere. Attach a file. Open a file. I'm like, well, you could... And it was difficult for... And she lived by this. And then the problem was, if something came along, and it was effectively the same thing, but she was stuck. Because she'd isolated the action from the concept. She'd isolated the action from the concept. I think what Jesus wants you to do is stop with the actions and go to the concept. The concept is, you need to love God and love people. Because if you love people, guess what? You're not going to call them idiot. If you love people, you're not going to walk around with anger at them. You can't stand it. If you love people, you're not going to turn someone into an object. Turn a woman into an object. I remember I, was, I went to University of Texas, Dallas, and I had a professor, and we were, we were studying Shakespeare, and somehow lust came up, like it does. Some play. And this, you know, secular professor said, do you know what lust is? He had this British accent. I can't do it. He said, do you know what lust is? Lust is turning a human into a hot fudge sundae that you consume. And I thought, that's a really good definition. You cease to be human. Every person you look at is an image bearer. Did you know that? Every person is an image bearer. And guess what? They are worthy of your love and respect and kindness because God loves them. I know this is shocking. Every bit as much as he loves you. I know that's a toughie to take down because you thought you were special. Jesus loves you, but I'm his favorite. The fact of the matter is, if I could get my head around, you're an image bearer. You're an image bearer. I love you because you're an image bearer, just like me. I wouldn't be asking. I wouldn't be sitting there going, don't lust, don't lust, don't lust, don't lust. And divorce, you know what gets me? You know what gets me here? I've literally sat around (laughs) these passages. I grew up, and I used to hear people sitting around in evangelical circles arguing. Kind of the whole, like, can God, if he can do anything, can he make a rock too big you can't lift it? Stupid, by the way. But I remember hearing people sitting around and arguing about this. I remember I had a friend. She divorced her husband. He had not cheated. And I was like, I'm, I'm curious. She's Christian. They're both believers. And I was like, so you're, you know, we, we would have worked, I worked with her, just like, please, you know, I think I'll try to reconcile. If he hasn't, you know, there's no infidelity going on. You know, you're just, a lot of arguing. I think maybe we could, you know, some counseling. So finally she went, well, no, I'm allowed to divorce him. It's, it's legal in the Bible. And I went, she said, well, Matthew 5, every man has lusted. And in lusting, he has committed adultery. Therefore, he has cheated on me, and I can leave him. 
Well, that was fancy. See what happens if you abandon context? I've also heard people sitting around saying, you know what, so John and Susie are married, but John and Susie, well, at least one of them has a marriage from before that wasn't a justified marriage. So now John and Susie are living in, the phrase I remember from childhood, perpetual state of adultery. Aw, that's loving. Let's everybody grab stones. And they were suggesting maybe they need to divorce to try to counteract the first divorce. Now stop at the logic of that. Can you just bite that one off with me for a minute? I think the solution for divorce A is to take what has become a good, glorifying to God marriage now and divorce to try to undo the mistake that was made in divorce A will divorce in B. Do you think that's what God's after? Because he loves divorce so much. You know, you've read that. You read these passages, and what you, what you hear are all these technicalities. And the thing is, what's a Pharisee or a legalist going to do? What did they constantly do to Jesus? Well, we noticed you didn't wash your hands the same number of times as us. You hellcat. We noticed that when your, when your disciples were walking through a field, they opened their palms and touched grain, and some grain got in their hands. That's farming on the Sabbath. These, I'm, I'm quoting the Bible, sort of. These arguments were made. The kind of people who sit around and get hung up on the details are legalists. They're Pharisees. And what did you just hear about Jesus' thoughts on the Pharisees? I hope you enjoy the outside of your clean bowl. Because the inside's just filthy. Because you've missed the principle. You're keeping score and you're convinced that by getting enough gold stars on your chart, you're going to reach, reach God's standard. But here's the real trick. What is God's standard? He's been saying it through the entire Bible. You shall be holy. Why? Because I'm holy. I'm the Lord, your God. You'll be perfect because I'm perfect. Let's go back to that statement. What's the character of God? Perfection. Anybody, anybody in here hit that one yet? You bullseyed perfection yet? So, Is God really expecting me to be perfect like him? Is that the deal? Do I have to be perfect like him? Kind of, yeah. Romans 6, what shall we say then? Would you continue in sin so that grace may increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? The standard is Jesus. Did Jesus sin? No, that's correct. You're all getting a little... Stay with me. About two more minutes. You can do it. The standard doesn't change. The standard can't change because of the character of God. So does he expect you to have that standard? Yeah, he does. So then are you saying, if I call someone a knucklehead, or I lust, or I... uh, Not exactly, because guess what? Can you meet the standard? Anybody? 
You can't. I'll tell you a story. Freshman year, college. So I went to University of Texas Dallas, and um, it, it was their first year admitting freshmen. So there were only 55 freshmen. They'd never had freshmen before. They'd only been in upper division in graduate school. So I get there, and I'm shiftless, 18-year-old. I don't know what I'm doing. And they're like, what major do you want? And I was like, which one has the last, least math? And they said, well, something in the arts and humanities. I said, sold. I don't want to be an actor. Literature. Let's do it. I can read. Okay? So um, I ran in to talk to my advisor, and I was like, okay, so I'm going to need, like, the dumb, dumb math. And they said, well, we're UTD. We don't really have dumb, dumb math. If you don't know, UTD's kind of a math and science place. They were like, yeah, we don't really have dumb, dumb math. And I was like, well... That sounds like a you problem. Do you have any coloring books with numbers? I don't, any. And they said, well, you, our lowest math is college calculus. <laughs> yeah, that's what I said. Yes. And when they woke me up, that's what I said. I said, well, I took pre-cal in high school, and it was an uphill climb to a B-. minus. Like... I clawed my way to a B minus. I'm not feeling like college calculus is where it's at for me. Um, and they said, well, that's the lowest we've got. There were five of us in the class. That shows you. Out of 55, five, five people went to the math and science school, not for math and science. Five of us in the class. And I remember the professor, Dr. George Kimmeldorf. Dr. George Kimmeldorf tried his dead level best to teach that room of lame brains, knuckleheads. He tried. And I worked. I worked. I really did. I was not a slacker in school. I worked really hard. I understand the process. Like, it's, it, it, it makes sense to me. You do the homework. You get a grade. I, I was never a kid who didn't do my work or anything. I, like, did the work. So I would go to class, and I swear I tried. I tried so hard. We got to the final. I took the final, and I was like, well, we'll see. And he, he handed back the final, and at the top it said 55. Okay, okay. Whatever. 55. And this is before email and World Wide Web, really, you know, so this is 1990. So I was like, well, it'll be a few weeks before that's mailed to the house. And maybe I can intercept it from mom and dad. Um, you know, over Christmas, the mail comes. I was at work. My mom opens the mail. And she goes, honey, way to go. On, on your math class. And I was like, wow, that's hard. like making fun of me. And she was like, what? You got an A. And I said, give me that. You've been drinking. Said A. Well, this had to be a glitch. But I wasn't going to tell my mom that right then. I was going to go ahead and buy some more time. But I couldn't, like, and my conscience was like, I can't just let this, I got to go in. So after Christmas, I go in, and I knock on Dr. Kimmeldorf's door, and I said, Dr. Kimmeldorf, I said, I, it pains me to bring this up, but I think there's been a mistake. You gave me an A in the class, and he, you know, squirrely little dude. Um, he said, well, that's correct. I said, I, nah, I realize you're the math guy, but I've been doing some figuring. <laughs> I don't see how a 55 and 
ends up with an A in the course. He said, you were the high grade on the exam. I said, what? He said, yes, everyone scored lower than you, so I simply added the 45 points to make it a curve, so you ended up getting a 100 on your final. I was shocked, to say the least. It's kind of how I feel about God's law. See, Dr. Kimmeldorf didn't, didn't write 100 on my exam, did he? Because then I might have foolishly thought, dang, I'm good at math. I'm going to become like a NASA, <laughs> like, and, you know, rockets falling from the sky. Who's the math guy? Well, I don't know. He's got a book of poetry on his desk. You know, he had to be honest. Yeah, you're terrible at math. You're terrible at math, but here's the thing. I'm going to fill in what's missing in your math. I'm going to fill in what's mis- missing on your score. The best you had was, frankly, terrible. But that's okay, because I control the grade book. And I'm going to show you mercy. I don't have to give you a curve, but I'm giving it to you. Probably he didn't want to see us again. There had been some shenanigans in class. I feel that way about, about God's relationship to us and our relationship to the law. God's not going to change the law for us, just like Dr. Kimmeldorf isn't going to change what the correct answers were on a calculus exam. They stand. I got it wrong. I failed. Somehow, I still get the A. And it's 100% about grace. Does God care if you try to be good? Yes, he would like you to be good. He'd like you, though, to be good knowing a couple of things. One, do it for the right reason. Do it because you're surrounded by image bearers and you want to show them love, not because you think it earns you credit with him. Number two, does he want you to do it? Yes, he wants you to do it because he wants you to do it out of love. Out of love. Number three, he wants you to realize you're not going to be perfect. And that's the great news. That's why we just heard at the beginning... All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, but we're justified as a gift by grace through the redemption which is in Jesus Christ. So what do we do? Work on your heart. Work on your heart. If you work on the inside of the bowl, the outside of the bowl gets taken care of itself. Work on your heart and your actions follow. Don't treat people like objects. People are not objects. They are subjects. They are image bearers. Treat them as such. You should take your righteousness and sin seriously. I would like to be good for Jesus. I want to be salt that's salty. I want to be a light on a hill, but I want to do it for the right reasons. And when you blow it, because you will blow it, God's grace still covers you. No matter how good or bad you are, guess what? God's grace covers you. And that was the plan since the garden. All the fig leaves in the world won't cover you, so God supplies a skin. It's always been the plan for him to cover us. Matthew 26 sums it up pretty well. While they were eating, Jesus took some bread. After a blessing, he broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. When he'd taken a cup and given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it. All of you, this is my blood 
my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would make us desirous to be people who live the law of love in every situation, with every person that we come into contact with. People close, people with whom we're intimate, strangers. Let us be the salt that's salty, the light on the hill, but let us not be Pharisees. At the same time, it's so easy to slip into that and be people who are obsessed with perfection and keeping score both for ourselves and for others. Father, we are who we are and what we are because of your grace, and let us never forget it. But let that grace push us to be people who want to follow hard after you, to live lives that reflect your Son and show Christ's love to the whole wide world. Pray this in your Son's precious name. In all things he may have preeminence. Amen. Let us stand.